1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'm really pleased that you're here today. We're going to be studying the Pali Canon in English. This is the Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 11, studying chapters 91 through 100. We have about another four or five weeks in this book, volume 11, before we move into volume 12. If this is the first time that you've joined us, welcome. A lot of students will read the chapters ahead of time before class. And while it sounds like a lot, 10 chapters, it's actually, in some cases, just one or two pages of content. But what we do in this program is a student will read the actual chapter. Then I will share some teachings about that chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have related to the teachings of the Buddha. And now we've in this Book titled The Realms of Existence. So we're studying about the realms the hell realm, the animal realm, the afflicted spirits, the human realm, and the heavenly realm. And all five of these realms are where beings are constantly being reborn over and over and over again until you get into a human birth or a heavenly birth where you have an opportunity to attain enlightenment. And from those births, you can cultivate wisdom, training the mind and get to the point where the mind is enlightened, experiencing peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, no longer experiencing any discontent feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, guilt, shame, fear, boredom loneliness and all these other discontent feelings and that comes through learning reflecting and practicing training the mind not through believing the teachings but through learning them through independently verifying them through your reflection and through practicing them to actually train the mind so here towards the end of this book series which there's 13 books in the series There's this volume about the realms of existence, and it's towards the end of the book series for a reason, because it's something that I encourage students to kind of postpone in their practice. If you're just starting out learning the Buddhist teachings, even if it's three months, six months, or even within your first year, I don't really recommend that somebody really tackle the understanding of the cycle of rebirth in the realms of existence. Because there's so many other things to learn and practice to get results with developing your life practice that as you're working on eliminating discontentedness, understanding the cycle of rebirth can be helpful and interesting, but it's not going to directly contribute to the elimination of discontentedness in the mind. So by focusing on things like the Three Universal Truths, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Natural Law of karma, the Three Poisons, developing your meditation practice, these are the things that are really going to support you in building a foundation towards the path to enlightenment and eliminating discontentedness from the mind. So if you're joining us for the first time, this is the book that we're studying, and I'd like to invite all of you to study along with us. We will typically do a meditation before we actually study, but in the last couple of sessions, the chapters are kind of long, so I've been just kind of foregoing the meditation. And once we get into some chapters where it kind of lends itself more to us doing a meditation, I'll be sure that we incorporate that into the class. So what we do is we display the chapters on the screen so that a student can actually read each individual chapter. And then as I mentioned, I'll provide teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you might have. So I'll just turn things over to all of you and specifically the moderators to guide us through the class. Rick and Miranda are moderating today. So thank you guys for your contributions to helping us. And I'll just turn things over to all of you guys.
2: Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I didn't have time to uh, put the reading list in the, uh, you know, in in the chat section, so I'll just call on people between myself, Miranda, and Jan. Thank you for your help, Jan. So, I will begin. Chapter 91, Boots from Residing in Formless Perceptions and Considering Impermanence here with the complete overcoming of perceptions of forms with the with the passing away of perceptions of sensory impingement with non-intention to perceptions of diversity perceiving space is infinite a monk enters and resides in the base of the infinity of space he considers whatever object exists their objects exist they are related to feeling perception volitional formations and consciousness as impermanent, discontentedness, an illness, a boil, a dart, misery, affliction, alien, disintegrating, empty, and non-self. He turns his mind away from those objects and directs it to the deathless element, in other words, enlightenment. Thus, this is peaceful, this is superb. That is, the stilling of all activities, the letting go of all material gain, the destruction of craving, freedom from strong feelings, elimination, Nibbana, enlightenment. If he is firm in this, he attains the destruction of the taint to the fetters. But if he does not attain the destruction of the taints because of that craving for the teachings because of that excitement in the teachings, then with complete destruction of the five lower fetters. He becomes one of this one of spontaneous birth due to attain final nibbana or final enlightenment there without ever returning to that world. Just as an archer or an archer's apprentice undergoes training on a straw man or a heap of clay and then at a later time becomes a long distance shooter, a sharpshooter, one who splits a great body. In reference to the base of infinite consciousness and the base of nothingness, identical teachings to the base of infinite space were spoken. The cases of the first Yana, the second Yana, the third Yana and the fourth Yana were spoken, but spoken, but the difference is to see impermanence in the five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, which means our choices and decisions and consciousness.
1: All right. Thank you, Rick. So here the Buddha is essentially talking about these formless perceptions or these other attainments outside of the jhanas. We kind of mentioned this last week that there's the four jhanas and then there's the four stages of enlightenment. The four jhanas are preliminary phases that the mind will go through as it experiences and moves into the first stage of enlightenment. These four preliminary phases are qualities of mind that arise in the mind and certain aspects that are eliminated from the mind as well. These are kind of indications to you. If you're putting together the Eightfold Path in terms of understanding right view through right concentration, you're practicing that in your life really well, you've developed your meditation practice, you'll start noticing that the mind will move into these jhanas where discontentedness will significantly decrease, and there's going to be this awareness of the mind that you didn't have before. There's going to be this concentration of the mind that you didn't have before. You're going to notice certain things that once created anger in the mind, and the mind got angry about these things. You'll notice that maybe the mind is just kind of a little bit annoyed or, or a little bit irritated by it, rather than this severe anger that you once had. And you'll notice this awareness of the mind, where before there was kind of like this conscious mind and the subconscious mind, by the time you start moving through the jhanas, the mind gets unified and there's this oneness of the mind where you have complete awareness of the entire mind. And this is like an indication that you're putting together all the steps on the full path. And now it's time to start focusing on the first stage of enlightenment because you're not interested in getting complacent in those jhanas because the experience in the jhanas is quite wonderful in terms of what you're experiencing in the mind it's like night and day compared to what you experienced in the past your mind might have in the past been very muddled very confused might have had certain confusion in the mind but now in these jhanas you'll experience this brightness not yet enlightened but you'll experience this brightness that you didn't have before so it's important to not get complacent there because the mind can actually regress out of the jhanas. But once you get into the first stage of enlightenment, the mind won't regress. So as you're experiencing these jhanas, it's important to stay dedicated and diligent in your practice. In addition to these four jhanas that the Buddha talks about, there's these other attainments. And he talks here about the space of infinite. And he talks about these other ones towards the end of this discourse that aren't here in the discourse, but they're referenced in the discourse. These other attainments are described at a part in this book series that the Buddha is talking about them, and then I describe them for you, what these other attainments are. But it's not something that everybody's necessarily going to experience. Like one of the attainments is being able to see past lives. So not everybody's going to have that experience, but it is something that is possible. So here he's essentially talking about this attainment of space is infinite, where the mind has this, And I don't usually talk too much about these because you're either going to experience these or not. There's nothing specific that you need to do in order to experience these things. All the teachings that you learn on the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings, if you're putting all that together and the mind is going to experience these other attainments, it will experience it. And if it's not, it's not going to experience it. That's unlike the jhanas. Everybody who gets to enlightenment will move through the jhanas and experience each of the individual jhanas. So that's why I teach those. Everybody who gets to enlightenment will experience the first, second, third, and then ultimately the fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind is enlightened. But these other attainments, not everybody's going to experience them. What the Buddha is ultimately getting to here is he talks about destruction of the taints or the fetters. This is the detailed pollution of the mind, that by eliminating all the individual fetters, all 10, the mind is actually enlightened. But then each one of those stages, there's a different degree of elimination of the pollution of mind. So to get to the first stage of enlightenment, you would eliminate the first three fetters. But there's a whole lot of work that needs to be done with the Eightfold Path and meditation and everything else before the mind's kind of ready to eliminate those fetters. And then as you go to the second, third, and fourth stage, there's different degrees, different amounts of these fetters that are actually eliminated. But by the time somebody gets to the third stage of enlightenment, which is what he's talking about here, with the complete destruction of the five lower fetters, That's the third stage of enlightenment, someone who's eliminated all five of the lower fetters. This person is now what we call a non-returner, meaning if they die having eliminated the five lower fetters, they are going to be reborn in the heavenly realm, and they will attain enlightenment from there, no longer returning back from the heavenly realm. That's what the Buddha is explaining here. And... Here, the Buddha is talking about final nibbana or final enlightenment. This is what we call somebody who's attained enlightenment and dies. So if you're a human being and you attain enlightenment and then you die, this is what's called final enlightenment. Or if you're in the heavenly realm and you attain enlightenment in the heavenly realm and then die from there, that's what we call final enlightenment. And we call it final enlightenment because as a being that attains enlightenment, The mind will no longer experience any discontentedness. All the sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, all those feelings that the unenlightened mind is burdened with, those are all eliminated. There'll be no more mental anguish in the mind whatsoever. But you can still experience some physical pain. It won't be as intense in the enlightened mental state as it was when you were unenlightened the mind relates to this physical pain very differently when the mind's enlightened versus when it's unenlightened. Because when the mind's enlightened, the mind knows that this physical pain is impermanent and it doesn't expect or crave permanent comfort. So if you are unenlightened and you hit your hand with a hammer, boy, is that going to hurt. You're gonna have the physical pain, you're gonna have mental anguish, you might start cussing or throwing things around or doing all kinds of other things and this is going to just intensify the pain as an enlightened being if you hit your hand with a hammer it's still going to hurt but you're not going to have the mental anguish because the mind isn't craving for permanent comfort it already understands that there's going to be some discomfort in the physical body so once somebody's enlightened, they've completely eliminated mental anguish, but there's still going to be the occasional physical pain. And that's there for a reason. It tells you that there's something wrong and to take action. So if you were standing too close to a fire, for example, and you were enlightened, that heat and that sensation on the physical body is there to tell the mind, hey, you're standing too close to a fire, you should move. But in the unenlightened state where you might get angry, frustrated, you might cuss or do something else, as an enlightened being, you're just, oh, it's too hot. Let me move. And you're just going to move, right? Rather than getting all upset about the whole situation. So, because this physical pain is still there to a certain degree, even though it's significantly reduced, there's still a certain amount of this physical pain. And once somebody reaches to the physical death of this body and the mind separates, We call this final nibbana or final enlightenment, because from that point, then you'll never experience any physical pain. You've already eliminated any mental anguish in the mind through getting to enlightenment, but you still haven't eliminated that little bit of physical pain that you can experience in certain situations. So it's not until death of the physical body where the body and the mind fully separate that now this is what we call final enlightenment, where the mind will never experience even physical pain ever again. So that's ultimately what the Buddha is getting to here and discussing and talking about. So let me open up to any questions that you guys have related to this particular chapter.
2: No questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. So we'll move on to the next chapter, which is 92.
2: And Miranda, would you please take down tea for us? Sure, thank you, sir.
3: The Heavenly Beings of the Pure Abodes. Once, monks, I was staying at Ukata in the Subha- Subhaga Grove at the foot of a great sal tree. And as I resided there in seclusion, it occurred to me there is no abode of beings easily accessible that has not been visited by me for so long as that of the heavenly beings of the pure abodes. Suppose I were to visit them now. And then as swiftly as a strong man might stretch his flexed arm or flex it again, I vanished from Ukata and appeared among the Ah -Ah -Ah aviha heavenly beings. And many thousands of them came to me, saluted me and stood to one side. Then they said, Sir, it is 91 eons since the Buddha of Vipassi appeared in the world. And we, sir, who lived the holy life with guidance from the Buddha Vipassi, having freed ourselves from sense desires, have arisen here. And many thousands of them came to me, saluted me, and stood to one side. Then they said, Sir, it is thirty-one eons since the Buddha Sikhi appeared in the world. And we, sir, who lived the holy life with guidance from the Buddha Sikhi, having freed ourselves from sense desires, have arisen here. And many thousands of them came to me, saluted me, and stood to one side. Then they said, sir, it is in the same 31st Eon that Buddha Besabu appeared in the world. And we, sir, who lived the holy life with guidance from the Buddha Besabu, having freed ourselves from sense desires, have arisen here. And many thousands of them came to me, saluted me, and stood to one side. Then they said, sir in this present fortunate eon, since the Buddha Kakusanda appeared in the world. And we, sir, who lived the holy life with guidance from the Buddha Kakusanda, having freed ourselves from sense desires, have arisen here. And many thousands of them came to me, saluted me and stood to one side. Then they said, sir, in this present fortunate eon, since the Buddha Konugan Gamana appeared in the world, And we, sir, who lived the holy life with guidance from the Buddha Konagamana, having freed ourselves from sense desires, have arisen here. And many thousands of them came to me, saluted me, and stood to one side. Then they said, Sir, in this present fortunate eon, since the Buddha Kasapa appeared in the world, and we, sir, who lived the holy life with guidance from the Buddha Kasapa, having freed ourselves from sense desires, have arisen here. And many thousands of them came to me, saluted me, and stood to one side. They said, Sir, in this fortunate eon now, the Buddha has arisen in the world. He was born of the Katya ethnic group and arose in a Katya family. He is of the Gotama clan. And we, sir, who have lived the holy life under the Buddha, having freed ourselves from sense desires, have arisen here. Then I went with the Aviha heavenly beings to see the Atapa heavenly beings. And with these, to see the Sudasa heavenly beings. And with these, to see the Sudasi heavenly beings. And with all these, to see the Akanita heavenly beings. And there, many thousands of heavenly beings came, saluted me, and stood to one side, saying, Sir, it is 91 eons since the Buddha Vipassi appeared in the world. And so it is, monks, that by his penetration of the fundamentals of the teachings, that the Tathagata remembers the past Buddhas who have attained final nirvana or final enlightenment. Cutting through multiplicity, blazing a trail, having exhausted the round, having have passed by all discontentedness, he recalls their births, their names, their clan, their lifespan, their twin disciples, their assemblies of disciples. These fortunate Buddhas were born thus, were called thus, Thus was their clan. Thus was their morality, their teachings, their wisdom, their residing. Thus was their liberation.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So there's a bunch of things to talk about here, what's going on. First of all, an eon is an immeasurable or incalculable period of time, even just one eon. So here the Buddha is talking about things that occurred, 91 eons ago or 31 eons ago these are like really really long periods of time and if you think about how the earth is thought at this point to be 4.5 billion years old it could be older we don't necessarily know but that's kind of like collective thought that it's around that time frame we can see how an eon could be in a significant period of time whether they even were able to count up that high during the lifetime of the Buddha, I'm unsure. Nowadays, you know, we have millions, billions, trillions, whatever other numbers are after that, but I'm not even sure that they had those kind of numbers during that lifetime. So we can see how an eon could be thought of as this incalculable period of time. What the Buddha is talking about here in this first paragraph is he's talking about how during his life, having attained enlightenment, he essentially goes and visits heavenly beings and teaches them the teachings in order to help them get to enlightenment and he's talking about this one group of heavenly beings that he hadn't visited in a while and that you know he felt like he should go visit them and today we think about kind of heavenly beings as just heavenly beings. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, he taught different types of heavenly beings, just like he teaches different types of hell beings. Just like there's dogs, cats, buffaloes, cows, monkeys. In the animal realm, there's different types of beings. In this realm of hell and in this realm of heaven, there's these different type of beings that he taught. But you don't necessarily need to know what all those different beings are and what they taught during his lifetime. If you understand the heavenly realm and the things that I've taught about the heavenly realm, you can just think of it as one realm with one big group of beings but when he talks about the heavenly beings of the pure abodes then you understand what he's talking about as a specific type of heavenly being and he has these other heavenly beings that he talks about in here as well throughout this discourse and other discourses as well so here he talks about going to these heavenly realms and encountering beings that are there And that have been there since a previous Buddha appeared in the world and he's talking about this 91 eons this can help you to see how he's talking about the lifespan of a heavenly being is so long it's unfathomable how long a lifespan of a heavenly being is you know we think about our life here in the human realm as maybe 80 to 100 years old and that's kind of a long life well, these beings are living, in this case, for 91 eons, this incalculable period of time. And he talks about these different Buddhas here in this particular discourse in this length of time that he that they've been in the, those realms. Now, through all the reading of the Pali Canon and all the investigation that I've done, this is the only thing that I've ever seen that is a conflict in the Pali Canon. And remember, the people who wrote down the Pali Canon were after the death of the Buddha. It wasn't the Buddha himself. So it's very easy to see how conflicts could be get introduced into the Pali Canon. And this is the only conflict that I've ever seen, is that there's some situations where it's documented that the Buddha is talking about previous Buddhas before him. But then if you look, there's a part where the Buddha talks about He is the originator, the discoverer, and the declarer of the path to enlightenment. And he says that this path to enlightenment was unarisen and undeclared before him, meaning he's the original Buddha declaring the path to enlightenment. But here's a situation where he's talking about past Buddhas. So this is a conflict, and it doesn't really truly matter whether there were past Buddhas or not what really matters is right now you're in the cycle of rebirth you're experiencing discontentedness the buddhist teachings are what's going to liberate you from that discontentedness whether there was you know 20 buddhas or 100 buddhas or just one previous to gotama buddha or if gotama buddha was the only buddha he was the original buddha it doesn't really truly matter but just to give you a heads up that you might see here these discussion about various Buddhas. You'll see it in other discourses as well. And if you see the teaching where he talks about being the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of the path, undeclared before him, you'll see this conflict. But other than that, I haven't found any conflicts in the Pali Canon whatsoever. What he ultimately gets to, if this discourse is actually a real true discourse, is he talks about himself as being the current Buddha, in that particular age and that this is what the heavenly beings are describing and he's saying that he essentially met heavenly beings in heaven that were students of his during his lifetime they eliminated the five lower fetters and they were reborn into the heavenly realm and he encountered them there and these heavenly beings are essentially sharing that they are ones who lived the holy life under him and they freed themselves from central desires and arisen there in the heavenly realm. And then it goes on from there and just you know talks about other things related to these Buddhas and past Buddhas. So this is essentially what's being described here. There's nothing here that's going to necessarily help you eliminate discontentedness. It's just gleaning information about this realm of heaven, about how a Buddha is able to teach heavenly beings how heavenly beings arise in their heavenly realm by eliminating the five lower fetters. And there's other ways for heavenly beings to get into heaven as well. But if they've eliminated the five lower fetters here in the human birth, then when they're reborn in the heavenly realm, they will get to enlightenment for sure in that next rebirth other beings who were reborn in the heavenly realm that haven't necessarily eliminated the five lower fetters they may or may not get to enlightenment in that very next birth so let me open up to any questions that you guys have on this discourse
2: it looks like there are no questions at this time sir
1: all right so we'll move to chapter 93.
2: okay and jan has volunteered to read This is a long chapter, Jan, Would you read about half of it. It's about two and a half pages, and I will read the second half.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Rick, of course. The heavenly beings from the ten world systems coming to see the Tathagata and his order of monks. Monks, it has often happened that the heavenly beings from ten world systems have come to see the Tathagata and his order of monks. So it has been with the Supreme Buddhas of the past, and so it will be with that of the future as it is with me now. I will detail for you the names of the groups of heavenly beings, announce them and teach them to you. Pay close attention and I will speak. 7,000 Yakas of Kapila's realm, well endowed with power and mighty skills, fair to see with splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. And 6,000 yakas from Himalaya of varied hue and well-endowed with powers, fair to see with splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. From Sata's mount, 3,000 yakas more of varied hue and well-endowed with powers, fair to see with splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. The sum is 16,000 yaka's all, of varied hue and well endowed with powers, fair to see with splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. Avesa host, 500 more of varied hue and well endowed with powers, fair to see with splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. Kumbira too, with Raja Daha comes whose dwelling place is on Vipula's slopes. A thousand hundred yakas follow him. King King Tahatarata, ruler of the east, the Gahabas, Lord, a mighty king, has come with company. Many sons are his, all who bear Indra's name, all well endowed with mighty skills. Fair to see with splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. King Viruha, ruler of the south, the Kumbhanda's lord, a mighty king, has come with company. Many sons are his, who all bear Indra's name, all well endowed with mighty skills, fair to see, with splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. Virupaka, ruler of the west, Ruler of Nagas and a mighty king has come with company. Many sons are his, who all bear Indra's name. All well endowed with mighty skills, fair to see, with splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. King Kuvara, ruler of the north, ruler of Yakas and a mighty king, has come with company. Many sons are his, who all bear Indra's name. All well endowed with mighty skills. Fair to see the splendid train have come, rejoicing to this wood to see such monks. From the east, King Dhatarata shone, from south, Virapaka, and from the west, Virapaka, Kuvara from the north, thus ranged in Kapalavuta's wood, the four great kings in all their splendor stood. With them came their vassals versed in guile, skilled deceivers all, Kutenda first, then Vitendu, Vitu, and Vituka, Kandana and Kamaseta next, Kinuganda and Nihanda, these, Pananda, Opamana, Matali, who was the heavenly beings charioteer, Nala, Kas. Sena of the Gabba Raja, Yana Shava, Pankasika, Timburu with Sura his daughter, these and more rejoicing king to that wood to see the Buddha's monks. From Nahasa, from the sorry, from the Tachaka, came Nagas, Kambalas, Asataras, Payagas with their kin. From Yamuna, Tatarata came with splendid hosts. Aravana too, the mighty Naga chief, to the forest meeting places come. And the twice born winged and clear of sight, fierce Garuda birds, the Naga's foes have come, flying here, Sitra and Supana. But here the Naga kings are safe. The Lord has imposed the troops. With gentle speech, they and the Nagas share the Buddha's peace. Asuras, too, whom Indra's hand once struck. Ocean dwellers now, in magic skilled, the Sava's resplendent brothers came. The Kalakanjas, terrible to see, Vidasas, Vepesita, Susita, and Parahadra, too, Fell Namusi and Mali's hundred sons, who all were called Varaka, with the band of warriors who joined their master, Rahu, who came to wish their meeting well. Gods of water, earth, fire, and wind, the Varunas and their retainers, Soma and Yasa too, heavenly beings born of love and compassion with a splendid train, these ten with ten full varied hosts. Venu, too, with his, his Sahalis came, the Asanas, the Yama twins, and those heavenly beings who attend on moon and sun, constellation gods, sprites of clouds, Saka, the Vasa's lord, ancient donor, these ten, with ten full varied hosts. I'm not sure how many pages I've read at this point.
2: Yeah, I can take over from here. Thank you, Sajan. You're Whatever. welcome. Continuing on. The Sahabu's radiant, bright came next, fiery crested. The Arad um, the Rajas, the cornflower blue with Varuna and sah- Sahadama, Akuta, and Ajaka, Suleya, the Vasavanesis. These 10 were tenfold varied hosts. The Samanas and the Mahasamanas both. Being manlike and more than manlike came. The pleasure corrupted and the mind corrupted gods, green heavenly beings and the red ones too, paragas, mahaparagas with train, these ten with tenfold varied hosts, sukhas, karumas, arunas, veganassas, follow in the odatagayas wake, vikahanas, sadamadas paragajas. There God's called mixed in splendor and Bajuna, the thunderer who also causes rain. <clears throat> These ten, but tenfold, varied hosts. The Kamiyas, the Tusidas, the Yamas, the Katakas with train, Lampitakas, the Lama chiefs, and the God of flame, the Asavas, those who excite in shapes. They've made, and those who seize on Shape those who excite in shapes they've made and those who seize on others work with these ten and with tenfold varied hosts. These sixty heavenly being hosts of varied kinds, all came arranged in order of their groups, and others too in due array. They said, He who's transcended birth, he for whom no obstacles remain, who's crossed the flood, him, federalists, will see the mighty one, traversing free without transgression, as if the moon were that passes through the clouds. is so next, and with him Paramakta, Sanakamara, Sanan Kamarara, something like that, this, uh, who were sons of the mighty one. These also came. Maha Brahma who ruled a thousand worlds in the Brahma world supreme, arisen there, shining bright and terrible to see, with all his train, ten lords of his who each rule a Brahma world, and in their midst, Harita, who ruled a hundred <clears> thousand. And when all these had come in the vast array, with Indra and the host of Brahma too, then, too, came Mara's hosts, and now observed that black one's folly, for he said, Come on, seize and bind them all. With lust, we'll catch them all. Surround them all about. Let none escape, whoever he may be. Thus the warlord urged his murky troops. With his palm, he struck the ground and made a horrid din as when a storm, god, or a storm cloud bursts with thunder, lightning, and with heavy rain. And then shrank back in rage but powerless. And he who knows by wisdom saw all this and understood its meaning. To his monks he said, The hosts of Mara come, monks, hey good heed. They heard the Buddha's words and stayed alert, and Mara's hosts drew back from those on whom neither prayed nor fear could gain a hold. Victorious, transcending fear, they've won his followers are to is with all the world.
1: All right. Thank you, Rick and Jan. So this is quite a long discourse here, and it's very unique. You know, we don't typically see these kind of long passages where it's kind of like, what are they talking about here? You know, what, what was being discussed? And, you know, it's really hard to pronounce a lot of these names and a lot of these beings that they were talking about. But one of the things that I take away from this particular discourse is right here at the beginning, where the Buddha talks about how heavenly beings essentially come to see a Tathagata, a Buddha, one who has arisen in the world to help others to attain enlightenment, and he's saying that that's what happened with him, that's what is going to happen with any future Buddhas as well, that anybody who is arisen as a Tathagata or a Buddha would see and observe that there's heavenly beings that are going to be interacting with that Buddha in order for them to get to enlightenment. Because remember, this heavenly realm, those beings, they aren't enlightened yet. They're still stuck in the cycle of rebirth. They need learning. They need wisdom in order to be able to get liberated from the cycle of rebirth. So oftentimes we're taught that the heavenly realm is desirable in other traditions, and that's the ultimate goal. But here you can see that the Buddha is essentially teaching these heavenly beings in order to help them to get out of the cycle of rebirth. And that's what he's basically saying here. All these different names, all these different things that he's talking about of all these beings that are coming to visit him, there's really no need to understand that or remember that. But if you understand that a Buddha is also helping heavenly beings to attain enlightenment and that's part of the role of a Buddha, then you can understand that aspect of these teachings. All these other things are essentially here and what was being spoken at the time, but isn't necessarily applicable to what we're working on through the path to enlightenment and eliminating discontentedness. Let me see what questions you guys have on this chapter.
2: It looks like we don't have any questions at this time,
4: sir. Rick, I'm sorry, I raised my hand.
2: <laughs> oh, okay, I, I apologize. Go ahead.
4: No worries. Thank you. Um, Teacher David, I notice in this passage that it's all about men and kind of, to me, implies um, that they're warlike and at the end there's this Mara trying to have a battle with them that doesn't succeed. Um, Would it make sense to understand this as just sort of a historical artifact that whoever wrote this down it wasn't the um, it wasn't Gautama Buddha it was someone later on and it's a reflection of the time in which it was written would that that make sense sir?
1: I think that's all accurate what you just shared there but I don't know that any of that is really going to be helpful in terms of eliminating discontentedness but Mm -hmm. I can see why you are sharing that in how you've gleaned that out of this particular passage or discourse. Thank you, appreciate it. You're welcome.
2: Okay, Miranda has her hand raised.
3: Yes, thank you, um, Sir, towards the end of this discourse, it's speaking of um, really, I think, these people reaching the jhanas, the blinded Mara. Um, how can a student of these teachings Be aware that they may have reached the
1: jhanas. You'll see that in the Eightfold Path where the Buddha talks in right concentration. He's describing what the jhanas are. And if you observe the qualities of the mind and you observe and read and investigate what the Buddha is explaining in those jhanas, then you'll be able to know that the mind is in the jhanas based on you experiencing what he's describing is part of right concentration. So right concentration in the Eightfold Path is practicing meditation and practicing singleness of mind, where you're just focused on a single object in daily life and training the mind to do that. But what he's describing in the Eightfold Path is the results of having put together all the path. So he's describing the jhanas there. And you can read that and see that. And then I've also taught about the jhanas in different classes where I'm explaining what each individual jhana is and what you'll experience in the mind when you're experiencing those jhanas.
3: Yes, sir. How can a student be sure that it's not the ego kind of fooling them into thinking that they're further along path than they really are, sir?
1: That's always a possibility with the jhanas and even the stages of enlightenment. What you should notice in the jhanas is you should notice a significant decrease in the discontentedness that's experienced. And you should notice this unification of the mind. If you've ever been in conversations where you've spoken and then some words slipped out and you're like, why did I say that? That was so silly of me. Why did I say that? I didn't mean to say that. You know, this is the subconscious mind motivating speech of the individual. So you'll no longer have those kind of things happening. So because you'll have this unification of the mind, you'll have the ability to observe the entire mind. And you'll notice this significant diminishing of discontentedness. And what's really important is, yes, that you can kind of observe that, but then getting into that first stage of enlightenment, which oftentimes the ego is there trying to convince people that they've gotten into that first stage of enlightenment when they actually really haven't. So I would say that it's interesting to look at the jhanas and to observe that exactly what the Buddha is describing as the jhanas is what you're experiencing. But more importantly, rather than you know try to track each individual jhana and how the mind's moving in and out of those, is instead just stay focused on that first stage of enlightenment and beyond because that's what's going to get you through the jhanas and then don't even convince the mind that you've attained any of those things even though it's like wow he's describing what i'm experiencing if we allow the ego to kick in and be like yeah look at me i've blindfolded mara You know, I've done this and I've done that. Look at me; I'm so great. Or, you know, I'm in the first stage of enlightenment. I'm no longer going to be reborn in the lower realms, or yada yada yada. If we allow the ego to do that, then that's just hindering somebody from further progress. So, I suggest that you learn those jhanas and you understand them, and you kind of see your mind, you know, moving through those and evolving through them. But don't spend a significant amount of time in those to allow the ego to wrap around it and think that it's so great for having attained it. Instead, just stay focused on the 10 fetters and eliminating those by the time you already have the Eightfold Path and everything else under your belt. Just stay focused on the 10 fetters from there on out.
2: Yes, thank you very much, sir. You're welcome. Chrissy has a question on Zoom. Um, Does it matter if one has reached the Yana's Uh, then she in parentheses she writes sp question mark which i'm not sure what that means is it best to just keep practicing and go forward or should one try to figure out if they are at this stage
1: yeah this is what i was just sharing is that you can know it can be kind of motivating when you observe that your mind is moved into the jhanas but you're going to kind of know that these teachings are working even before that you'll know that you're handling your relationships better, that you're interacting with people differently. You'll notice that things that once created anger and there was anger in the mind, you handled it differently this time. You'll see those things and motivating you along the way. But I've seen some practitioners, not students of mine, but in other communities that just get so bogged down into dissecting each individual jhana and trying to figure out exactly what jhana they're in and where they're headed and all this stuff. And it just takes away from implementing the Eightfold Path and focusing on the Ten Fetters because they're so bogged down and the ego's trying to figure out you know, where they are in the jhanas rather than just focus on forward progress. So I don't necessarily suggest that anybody spend much time trying to Track or figure out which jhana they're in. Instead, just look beyond that to the 10 fetters and get to enlightenment because that's the ultimate goal. Those jhanas are still impermanent. If someone gets bogged down there, their mind can actually regress. So by staying focused on the 10 fetters, then you're ensuring that there's forward progress.
2: It looks like we have no more questions this time, sir.
1: All right. So we're off to chapter 94.
2: And Miranda, would you please take that one for us? Sure. Thank you, sir.
3: Once the heavenly beings and the Asuras were arrayed for battle. Monks, once in the past, a certain man set out from Rajagaha and went to the Sumagara Lotus Pond, thinking, I will reflect about the world. He then sat down on the bank of the Sumagara Lotus Pond, reflecting about the world. Then, monks, the man saw a four-division army entering a lotus stalk on the bank of the pond. Having seen this, he thought, I must be mad, I must be insane. I've seen something that doesn't exist in the world. The man returned to the city and informed a great crowd of people, I must be mad, sirs, I must be insane. I've seen something that doesn't exist in the world. They said to him, but how is it, good man, that you are mad? How are you insane? And what have you seen that doesn't exist in the world? Here sirs, I left Rajagaha and approached the Sumagata Lotus Pond thinking, I will reflect about the world. He then sat down on the bank of the Sumagata Lotus Pond reflecting about the world. I saw a four division army entering a Lotus stop on the bank of the pond. That's why I'm mad. That's why I'm insane. That's why I've seen that doesn't, that that doesn't exist in the world. Surely you're mad, good man. Surely you're insane. And what you have seen doesn't exist in the world. Nevertheless, monks, what that man saw was actually real, not unreal. Once in the past, the heavenly beings and the Asuras were arrayed for battle. In that battle, the heavenly beings won, and the Asuras were defeated. In their defeat, the Asuras were frightened and entered the Asura city through the lotus Star to the bewilderment of the heavenly beings. Therefore, monks, do not reflect about the world thinking the world is eternal, the world is not eternal, or the world is finite, or the world is infinite, or the soul and the body are the same, or the soul is one thing, the body is another. Or the tattagata exists after death, or the tattagata does not exist after death, or the tattagata both exists and does not exist after death, or the tattagata neither exists nor does not exist after death. For what reason? Because, monks, this reflection is unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life and does not lead to fading away of strong feelings, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to nirvana. When you reflect, monks, you should reflect, this is discontentedness. You should reflect, this is the cause of discontentedness. You should reflect. This is the elimination of discontentedness. You should reflect. This is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness. For what reason? Because, monks, this reflection is beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and leads to the fading away of strong feelings, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. Therefore monks, an effort should be made to understand this is discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the cause of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the elimination of discontentedness. An effort should be made to understand this is the way leading to the elimination of discontentedness.
1: All right, thank you Miranda. So here we're learning about these heavenly beings that somebody has seen and they didn't understand that they had seen these heavenly beings and they thought they were going insane or they were mad, right? And the Buddha essentially says, no, this person wasn't crazy. They weren't insane. They actually saw these heavenly beings and these asuras. This is something that can happen in life. So it's important to understand that so that if you see any beings from the heavenly realm or you see afflicted spirits or if you see beings from the hell realm that you don't feel like you're going crazy that this is indeed things that actually really do truly occur because if you see these things and you start getting your mind wrapped around it like you know you're going insane or you're going mad then it can lead to a lot of problems so these things happen not only can you see these beings in the formless realms, but you can also sometimes hear them as well, and they can communicate. So that's to be understood. And then what the Buddha ultimately gets to is he talks about how these teachings that he's left as undeclared, and he talks about this in other parts of his teachings as well where he says that these things are his undeclared teachings. He suggests that people don't reflect on these things. And in his other teachings, he says these are considered to be his undeclared teachings. Because if you think about this, all of these teachings essentially conflict with what he's already taught. So if the world was eternal, then that conflicts with the universal truth of impermanence. If the world is not eternal, you know, this isn't necessarily true, that it's not eternal. The world is finite or infinite. This also conflicts with his teachings on the universal truth of impermanence. The teaching of the soul is one thing or the soul is another thing. He didn't teach whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. Once again, if there was a soul, this would conflict with the universal truth of impermanence, so this isn't a declared teaching of his. And he didn't declare whether he exists after death or not. Uh, Some people will say that an enlightened being, once they die, they no longer exist. But this is a misunderstanding of the Buddhist teachings. He didn't say whether he exists or doesn't exist. And because he's an enlightened being, you can extrapolate this not only for a Buddha, but for for all enlightened beings. He doesn't declare whether a being exists or doesn't exist. It's an undeclared teaching. You need to get to the point where the mind eliminates any craving to know what's next. And by the time that the mind is enlightened, then the mind is so peaceful and calm and serene and content with joy, you're not going to care what's next, if there's anything at all. Because if there is something that's next, it's either Good is what you're experiencing in the enlightened mental state, or it's better. But the Buddha didn't declare whether there is or isn't something next. So you just need to get rid of any craving or desire to know what is next or if there is something that's next. And then in the common way that the Buddha does is he says, you know, no need to focus on all of this stuff over here. What you really need to focus on is the Four Noble Truths. That's what he's describing here, because... Those other things, he says, are unbeneficial. They're irrelevant to getting to enlightenment. What he's interested in doing is focusing his students on what it takes to get to enlightenment. And what it takes to get to enlightenment is to understand the Four Noble Truths. And that's what he Points and directs the students to understanding is discontentedness, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward, which is the full path. And he says that's what people should focus on because that is beneficial. That is what leads to elimination of strong feelings. That's what leads to peacefulness. That's what leads to enlightenment. So here he's encouraging his students to focus. On learning and practicing the Four Noble Truths, because that's the very first step of the Eightfold Path, is to establish right view. Without establishing right view and understanding that all the feelings and emotions that you're having in the mind are created by your own mind, then you wouldn't be able to develop all the rest of the path. Because if you still had wrong view, believing that other people are causing you to be angry, then you would just be focusing on the wrong problem. You would be trying to fix everybody else because your mind is perfect. But when you understand right view that you are causing your own discontentedness, then you focus on the real problem and that's where you can get real results. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: Miranda has her hand up.
3: Thank you, sir. Um, There is a question on YouTube, Pepico. Asks, is soul and consciousness the
1: same? The Buddha never taught whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. So that you'll need to just set aside, and it's an undeclared teaching of whether there is such thing as a soul. The consciousness is the mind or the awareness, it's the mind. And there are some traditions of Buddhist teachings that talk about a soul, but as you can see in the words of the Buddha, He didn't declare that there is a soul or there isn't a soul because it conflicts with the universal truth of impermanence because the concept of a soul is that there's this entity in each existence that moves forward from one existence to the next, meaning there's this permanent soul that goes from one existence to the other. This completely conflicts with his most basic teaching on the universal truth of impermanence. So he didn't teach whether there is a soul or there isn't a soul. So they are two different things, but I encourage you to set aside any kind of discussion or aspect of a soul because the Buddha didn't declare that there is one or there isn't one. And it conflicts with the most basic understanding of the universal truth of impermanence. So it's best to think of those two things as separate and not even consider that there is or isn't a soul. Just focus on training the mind. That's what's really important.
3: Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. There are no more questions on Facebook or YouTube right now, sir.
2: Okay, thank you, ma'am. Chrissy on Zoom asks, how does one comfort a child that hears and sees these beings?
1: Just help them understand that it's normal, that there's nothing wrong with them, that These beings are there just like there's dogs and cats and lizards and other animals. And there's also other humans in the world. These other beings are just formless beings. There's no need to be scared of them. Um, There's no need to have fear of them. They're not going to hurt you as long as you're not causing any harm in the world. There's no harm that's coming to you. So these beings are kind of showing up because usually children and people who are more awake, more enlightened, These beings can communicate with us, and they actually like that. You know, that's one of the aspects of why they're stuck in the cycle of rebirth, especially afflicted spirits. They're really craving, you know, they're really holding on to the world. So when they have somebody who's more awake, which children oftentimes have a certain degree of awakening in their mind they feel like they would like to kind of latch onto this person. And that's the way for them to kind of communicate and participate in the world. So you can just talk to them nicely and ask them to go away and that you're not interested in talking. Just talk to them like you would any other human being using the five factors of well-spoken speech, whether it's a heavenly being, an afflicted spirit, or a being from the hell realm. Just say, you know, I'm not interested in talking to you. You know, please go away doesn't mean that they're going to go away but you know you can just talk to them normally it's a normal situation that occurs and let them know that they don't have to have any fear
2: it looks like we have no more questions on zoom sir
1: all right so we'll go to chapter 95
2: thank you sir and jan would you please read chapter 95 for us
4: yes thank you rick Gender of Five Beings. Ananda, a monk understands it is impossible, it cannot happen that a woman could be a fortunate one, a fully, perfectly enlightened one. There is no such possibility. And he understands it is possible that a man might be a fortunate one, a fully, perfectly enlightened one. There is such a possibility. He understands it is impossible, it cannot happen, that a woman could be a wheel turning monarch. There is no such possibility. And he understands it is possible that a man might be a wheel turning monarch. There is such a possibility. He understands it is impossible. It cannot happen that a woman could be a Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings. There is no such possibility. And he understands it is possible that a man might be a Saka. There is such a possibility. He understands it is impossible. It cannot happen that a woman could be Mara, the Evil One. There is no such possibility. And he understands it is possible that a man might be Mara. There is such a possibility. He understands it is impossible. It cannot happen that a woman could be a Brahma, God. There is no such possibility. And he understands it is possible that a man might be a Brahma. God. There is such a possibility.
1: All right, thank you, Jan. So let's talk about this. You know, oftentimes when we look about teachings in the past or generations in the past, we kind of see this gender bias that's kind of, you know, in certain things that we see. And if your mind's been conditioned that way and you think that way, when you read something like this from the Buddha, you might think that he's actually being gender biased in the way that he's actually teaching, but that's actually not what's occurring here. What he's essentially stating is he's stating the natural laws of existence of what is possible and what isn't possible. And he's not just saying that a woman is incapable in terms of their knowledge or their skill or who they are as a person or anything like this. He's just stating what the actual gender of these five types of beings are. And he's not holding these types of beings as being exclusive just for men, and like women are below men. That's not what he's saying here at all. He's just saying that the gender of these particular types of beings, these five, are going to be male. And there's actually beings that are in the world today that can only be male and female. For example, I put it here in the description that clownfish are all born as males, where whiptail lizards are all female right? These are things that occur naturally in the world. It's impossible for a female to be a clownfish and it's impossible for a male to be a whiptail lizard. So the Buddha is explaining the same thing here in terms of what is possible for these five types of beings. And we can see that he's not being exclusive and degrading to women because one of the types of beings that he's talking about here is actually highly undesirable is being this being of Mara, the evil one. In other traditions, you might have referred to this being as the devil or Satan or Lucifer. This is an evil being that is interested in causing harm and calamity in the world and tries to influence unwholesome conduct by beings in the world. This is a being that we typically associate with the realm of hell and kind of overseeing that realm. Well, if the Buddha was trying to preserve these you know dignified positions for males and he had this gender bias in his mind he surely wouldn't have shared this one he would have said oh a woman is a is a mara right if he was trying to degrade women but here you can see that even this undesirable being who nobody that i know of is really interested in doing that i'm sure there's other beings somewhere that would truly love to be mara but you know people who are interested in wholesome conduct they're not interested in being mara so here you can see that even this being he says is a male as well so this is just insight that you can understand and don't allow any conditioning of the mind that you might have been exposed to in the past in terms of people who degrade women in certain ways don't think that that's what the buddha is doing here he's just describing what is possible and isn't possible One of the wonderful things about the evolution of humanity and where we are today in the world is we're getting more and more to a point where people realize that men and women can perform roles equally, that there's not necessarily any particular role in society that a woman can't perform and that only a man can perform, that we have this gender neutral understanding that all these different roles in the world can be performed by males or women. But here, this isn't a role. This is a particular type of being that the Buddha is talking about. Just like clownfish are all males and whiptail lizards are all females, those are particular types of beings that he's saying, based on the natural laws of existence, these particular beings are all male. So What we look at today is we look at these roles, right? A woman can be a prime minister of a country and a man can be a prime minister of a country. A woman can be a CEO and a man can be a CEO. Uh, We have all these different roles and every gender can perform all of these roles equally to the best of their ability. So that's not what the Buddha's talking about here in terms of roles, he's just talking about genders associated with particular types of beings, like those clownfish and like the whiptail lizards. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: Renda has your rend up.
3: Yes, thank you, sir. Um, did Gautama Buddha ever give any reason as to why these are all going to be males, these beings, sir?
1: I haven't seen that. I did look at this particular part of the teachings, and there's something that he's teaching underneath of all of this, which it escapes my mind right now about what that was. But if you're interested, you can use this reference right here that some students looked up, possibly even Miranda. (laughs) She was one of the ones who helped with this project. I think she did this book, actually. If you look up these references, there's something that he's saying under this that I looked at and I was like, oh, that's actually even more important than what he's sharing here. So if you're interested in what he was talking about, it seems to me that this right here is kind of a lead in to something else that he was teaching and when i saw that teaching i was like ah that makes sense why he was saying this in order to lead into this other teaching so i would encourage anybody who's interested to go look at that reference and you'll be able to see it
3: yes thank you sir
1: you're welcome uh
3: there are no questions on facebook or youtube at this time sir
2: and no questions on zoom at this time sir
1: all right we'll go to chapter 96
2: Four observable benefits for one who learned teachings by ear. Monks, when one has learned the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind and penetrated them well by view, four benefits are to be observed. What for? Here a monk masters the teachings, discourses, mixed prose and verse. Expositions, verses, inspired spoken phrases, quotations, birth stories, amazing accounts, and questions and answers. He has learned those teachings by ear, studied them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. He passes away muddled in mind and is reborn into a certain group of heavenly beings. There, the happy ones recite passages of the teachings to, to him the arising of his memory is sluggish but then that being quickly reached his distinction this is the first benefit to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear recited them verbally examined them with the mind and penetrated them well by view again among masters of teaching discourses mixed prose and verse Expositions, verse-inspired spoken phrases, quotations, birth stories, amazing accounts and questions and answers. He has practiced those teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. He passes away muddled in mind, and is reborn into a certain group of heavenly beings. There, the happy ones do not recite passages of the teachings to him but a monk with psychic potency who has attained mastery of mind teaches the t- teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings it occurs to him this is the teachings and the discipline in which i have formerly lived in spiritual life in, lived the spiritual life the arising of his memory is sluggish but then that being quickly reaches distinction Suppose a man was skilled in the sound of a kettle drum. While traveling along a highway, he might hear the sound of a kettle drum and would not be at all confused or uncertain about the sound. Rather, he would conclude this, that is the sound of a kettle drum. So, too, among masters, the teachings, the arising of his memory is sluggish, and then that being quickly reaches distinction. This is the second benefit to be observed when one has followed the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. Again, among masters, the teachings, discourses, mixed prose and verse, expositions, verses, inspired spoken phrases, quotations, birth stories, amazing accounts, and questions and answers. He has learned those teachings by ear recited them verbally examined them with the mind and penetrated them well by view. He passes away muddled in mind and is reborn into a certain group of heavenly beings. There the happy ones do not recite passages of the teachings to him nor does a monk with psychic potency who has attained mastery of mind teach the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. However. A young heavenly being teaches the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings, and it occurs to him, These are the teachings and discipline in which I formerly lived in spiritual life. The arising of this memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. Suppose a man were skilled in the sound of a conch. While traveling along a highway, he might hear the sounds of a conch, and he would not be and all confused or uncertain about the sounds rather he would conclude that is the sound of a conch. So too a monk masters the teachings. The arising of his memory is sluggish but then that being quickly reaches distinction. This is the third benefit to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind and penetrated them well by view. Again among masters, the teachings, discourses, mixed prose and verse, expositions, verses, inspired, spoken phrases, quotations, verse stories, amazing accounts, and questions and answers. He has practiced those teachings by ear, recited them verbally, examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view. He passes away, muddled in mind, and is reborn into a certain group of heavenly beings. There the happy ones do not recite passages of the teachings to him, nor does a monk with psychic potency who has attained mastery of mind teach the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings, nor does a young heavenly being teach the teachings to an assembly of heavenly beings. However, one being who has been spontaneously reborn reminds another who has been spontaneously reborn. Do you remember, dear sir? Do you remember where we formerly lived the spiritual life? The other says, I remember, dear sir, I remember. The arising of his memory is sluggish, but then that being quickly reaches distinction. Suppose there were two friends who had played together in the mud. By chance, they would meet one another later in life. Then one friend would say to the other, Do you remember this friend? Do you remember that friend? And the other would say, I remember, friend, I remember so too among masters to teachings the arising of his memory is sluggish but then that being quickly reaches distinction this is the fourth benefit to be observed when one has learned teachings by ear recited them verbally examined them with the mind, and penetrated them well by view these are the four benefits to be observed when one has learned the teachings by ear recited them verbally examined them with the mind and penetrated
1: them well worldwide. Okay thank you Rick. So here this is a lot of discussion about someone who is in this human life, learns the teachings, doesn't get to enlightenment but is reborn into the heavenly realm. And from the heavenly realm there's these residual memories that occur that helps them to remember the teachings and ultimately get to enlightenment there this is what's occurring being reborn from the human realm to the heavenly realm but it's also what occurs from human to human birth or animal to human that a human being can have residual memories of past lives and that's what the buddha is describing here and residual memories of things that we did in those past lives and certain wisdom that we accumulated in past lives. This is why you can see a three-year-old child who's a piano prodigy, for example, or a six-year-old child who can speak you know, 10 different languages because they've learned this wisdom in a previous life and now that wisdom is being retained in this new life. Even though it's a completely new mind from existence to existence, cravings and residual memories move from one life to the next from one mind to the next it's a completely new mind a completely new body but there's these cravings and residual memories that move forward so if somebody is learning and practicing these teachings in this life and you get to enlightenment outstanding you're never going to be reborn in the cycle of rebirth ever again But if for some reason you fall short of that, what the Buddha is helping you to see here in this teaching and other teachings that he shares is that the wisdom that you cultivate in this life is going to help you in the next life. And that's what essentially he's getting to here. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: Miranda has her hand raised.
3: Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, On YouTube, Pepico had a question about the previous chapter um, asking what is meant by a wheel-turning monarch,
1: sir? Sure. I've described this in some other classes as well. What a wheel-turning monarch is, is a leader who, you know, kind of is, you know, responsible for a population of people, and they're leading this population of people through the teachings of the Buddha, so that when they're, you know, back in the Buddha's time, there were kings who administered punishments, for example. And when they're leading this group of people, they're functioning as themselves through the teachings of the Buddha, meaning they're not killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, they're not lying, they're not taking substances that cause heedlessness, they're practicing things like right intention, right speech, right action, and so forth. And when they're guiding and leading this population of people, they're doing so as essentially a role model of these teachings. A wheel turning monarch can have a significant influence over a large population of people and guide these people to you know an improved existence because they're using this leader as a role model and an example for what they can practice in their own life so during the lifetime of the buddha there were wheel turning monarchs who were designated as a king and back during his lifetime only males could become a king. So it's understandable why he said that only a male can be a wheel-turning monarch. But I would suggest that in today's time, that if we look at this definition of a wheel-turning monarch as being a leader who guides a large population of people, we can have a female wheel-turning monarch because of now how human life has evolved, that we have females who are leaders, like a prime minister or a president or someone like this and that they could be able to learn and practice these teachings to a point where they're practicing themselves and as they're making decisions in their role as a prime minister or president or something like this that they're doing so based on harmlessness and all these other aspects of the eightfold path that we learn and that we practice so that's what a wheel turning monarch is during the lifetime of the buddha And it could only be a male because it wasn't possible in the region of the world that he was in for a female to be a king, for example. But I would suggest today that we can have females that are wheel turning monarchs if we think about them as a leader who's guiding people through these teachings based on their own conduct and their own decisions in life in that role as a leader.
3: Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, Papiko is asking for a bit of clarification on why it's called wheel turning start.
1: Sure. So during the lifetime of a Buddha, when a Buddha awakens, they turn what's called the Dhamma wheel. This is an eight-spoked wheel that is essentially reminding people of the cycle of rebirth and the eight spokes are the eight steps of the Eightfold Path. And when a Buddha awakens from enlightenment, they reach up with their hand and they turn this. Dhamma wheel counterclockwise. It's a figurative thing where we say that a Buddha has turned this Dhamma wheel. And it's on the flat spot of the back of their skull, where the top of their skull and the back of their skull meet. There's a flat spot there. And a Buddha will know that they need to turn this. And what this is, is this is a symbol of humanity stepping forward. Because when a Buddha awakens in the world, it's the best opportunity for beings to get to enlightenment because the wisdom of a buddha is going to be very deep and very profound so a buddha awakening they are turning this dhamma wheel as a way of signifying humanity stepping forward in all of civilization now being able to learn and practice to get to the point where they get to enlightenment so a wheel turning monarch is one who's existing during the lifetime of a buddha and they're learning potentially directly from a buddha And now they're helping to turn this wheel. They're helping to move civilization forward because they're guiding a large population of people in a way that's going to help them to learn and understand and practice these teachings. And then after a Buddha dies, there can still be wheel-turning monarchs because even after a Buddha dies, he's going to leave his teachings in such a condition that more and more people can continue to get to enlightenment countless people can get to enlightenment so there can be wheel-turning monarchs during the lifetime of a buddha and afterwards but it all gets started during the lifetime of a buddha because that's when the teachings come into the world in a very clear very profound way the teachings are shining in the world when there's a buddha that has arisen in the world they're very clear very precise very concise teachings
3: Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Coming back to this chapter, uh, can this also pertain to someone who has learned, practiced, and reflect on these teachings in a previous existence, where now in this current existence, they're now learning and reflecting and practicing these teachings, where there can be almost a feeling of familiarity, where it feels or it seems like, One can almost remember learning these before, even though we know that in this lifetime we have not.
1: Yeah, the same thing can occur in this human realm is that if you've learned these teachings in the past and now you're learning them and they just make sense to you, it feels like you have even heard these teachings in the past. This can be from previous lives where you've learned and practiced these teachings. And now in this life, it makes it a bit easier for you that you can now move forward and progress towards a higher stage of enlightenment than what you experienced in the last life. So if you find it really difficult and a real struggle to learn and practice these teachings, it can be that you haven't had the opportunity in past lives to learn and practice these teachings. So any work that you're doing in this life Even if you've never learned these teachings in a past life, you can start learning them in this life and get all the way to enlightenment. But if you fall short of that, any work that you do in this life is only going to help you in a future life.
3: Yes, thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, There are no more questions on YouTube and Facebook
2: at this time. And there are no more questions on Zoom either.
1: All right, so we'll go to the next chapter, which is chapter 97.
2: Okay, and Miranda, would you please read that for us?
3: Yes, sir. The heaven named Contact Sixfold Base. It is a gain for you, monks. It is well gained by you that you have obtained the opportunity for living a holy life. I have seen, monks, the heaven named Contact Sixfold Base. There, whatever form one sees with the eye is desirable, never undesirable, lovely, never unlovely agreeable, never disagreeable. Whatever sound one hears with the ear, whatever odor one smells with the nose, whatever flavor one tastes with the tongue, whatever physical object one touches with the body, whatever mental objects one recognizes with the mind is desirable, never undesirable, lovely, never unlovely, agreeable, never disagreeable. It is a gain for you monks, it is well gained by you, that you have obtained the opportunity for living the holy life.
1: All right, thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is talking about the heavenly realm, and these are things that I've talked about before, but here he's explaining it in a lot more detail. If you understand how the mind functions, that when the mind experiences agreeable contact through the six sense bases it's going to experience pleasant feelings like happiness excitement elation thrill euphoria and when we experience disagreeable contact through the six sense bases then there's going to be painful feelings like anger sadness frustration irritation annoyance all these other discontent feelings what he's explaining here is that in that heavenly realm there's only agreeable contact that there's nothing disagreeable and this is why he shares in other places that heavenly beings only experience pleasant feelings and this is actually problematic for beings that live in that realm it sounds like wow so wonderful i'd like to go there right but that's because you might have central desire and you're like oh i would love to be in a place where you know i've only ever get agreeable things and i only have pleasant feelings but the problem is is that these beings lack Motivation and encouragement to get to enlightenment because they're only experiencing pleasant feelings because everything is agreeable to them. So while it sounds interesting, it's actually undesirable because you're going to end up getting complacent in those heavenly realms. And then there's the likelihood that someone in a heavenly existence is going to be reborn back into the lower realms. The Buddha talked about this in other chapters and other classes that we've studied where he talks about it being very common that heavenly beings are reborn into hell animal realm and afflicted spirits and he says it's very uncommon for them to be reborn back into the heavenly realm and back into the human realm they're oftentimes reborn into the lower realms so the goal here should never be to get to the heavenly realm because you still have this you know mountain of challenge to be able to overcome the central desire of the mind longing, yearning through these six sense bases in order to get pleasant feelings. And it's even more challenging here because you're not ever experiencing the painful feelings, at least in this human life, which is what the Buddha is explaining here. As he says, you know, it is well gained by you that you have obtained this opportunity for living the holy life. What he's explaining, and he explains this in other parts of his teachings, that it's wonderful that you've obtained this human state. While we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant, these can be motivation for us to get to enlightenment. Whereas if we're only ever experiencing pleasant feelings, we're less likely to be motivated. We're more likely to have complacency. So even though you might have had a lot of misery and a lot of suffering and a lot of difficulties and struggles in certain parts of your life, look at that as motivation and encouragement, that you can now use that to propel you and give you enthusiasm that, gosh, I'm interested in getting away from that misery. I'm interested in getting away from that pain so that I never have to experience it again. So this path and these struggles that you encounter on the path to enlightenment is the last struggle of all struggles. Once you overcome these difficulties that the mind is experiencing due to its craving, anger, and ignorance, Once you eliminate that and you get to enlightenment, you'll no longer struggle with anything ever in your life again. All the struggles and difficulties are eliminated. You'll still experience impermanence, but you'll know how to deal with every single thing that you're encountering because you'll have the wisdom of how to deal with that and your mind will never be shaken up as an enlightened being. But being in that heavenly realm where you're only experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings, the mind is still shaken up if you've ever been excited or having thrill or euphoria and you've dropped your phone and broke it or you've twisted your ankle or you've dropped something else and broke it this is because the mind is uncalm or unsteady because you're so excited over the top or if you were a child and you were so excited and jumping around and you fell and broke your arm or broke your leg or hit your head on the concrete or something like this these things are typically happening because we're so excited we've lost our focus we've lost our clarity because our mind is polluted with this you know central desire where now it's experiencing these pleasant feelings so those beings in the heavenly realm they're still struggling they're just happen to be experiencing exclusively pleasant feelings so the buddha is saying it's really wonderful that you've obtained this human state that now you can truly work and have the motivation and enthusiasm to get to enlightenment what questions do you guys have on this chapter
2: um, Thank you teacher David I'm kind of curious because you you know you've often said that uh, being in the Go, getting into the heavenly realms is probably not the best goal because it's hard to get achieve nibbana in the heavenly realms because, in, in, especially in this particular one that we're talking about, it's such a pleasurable experience. Um, I'm trying to imagine, you know, not achieving nibbana in its lifetime and, and, and finding myself or, or my energy or whatever in, in that particular realm. Um, and let's say I'm there and I'm enjoying all of these things, but something in me has evolved enough that I, I realize this is not the real deal or this is not the whole thing. In that case, are there Buddhas or Arahads or Bodhisattvas on that realm that are available to teach to help me to get out of that realm into something higher?
1: Yeah. So there are beings there that can teach. That's what he was talking about in the previous chapter. But as I'm sharing here is that beings in the heavenly realm oftentimes lack the motivation. You can even see that here in the human realm, that sometimes I encounter people who are interested in talking about the teachings and their life is fairly peaceful. You know, they experience a little bit of discontentedness here and there, but they really lack motivation to actually learn even in this human existence. So there are beings there they're not bodhisattvas because that's actually not something that really exists. This is a misunderstanding of the teachings of the Buddha. There aren't Buddhas there because there's only Gautama Buddha. And then there's this future Buddha that the Buddha talked about. And while a Buddha is in existence, they are going to be sharing the teachings with beings in the human realm. And the Buddha talks about how during the existence of a Buddha, the heavenly realm fills up because it's, much easier for beings during the lifetime of a buddha to get to enlightenment but it's also a lot easier for them to get to the point of non-returning which is that third stage of enlightenment so the heavenly realm fills up during the lifetime of a buddha and a buddha will be able to teach heavenly beings but they're not physically in the heavenly realm they're still in a human existence and There's not arahants there because once somebody gets to arahant, then they're no longer going to be reborn. But there are beings there that have residual memories of the teachings and are able to be shared. And there's during the lifetime of a Buddha, a Buddha can share the teachings. But by and large, those beings are very complacent. So it's more likely that beings in the heavenly realm are reborn into the lower realms. It's only non-returners who are going to definitely get to enlightenment from the heavenly realm. And then there are some heavenly beings who do do the work to get to enlightenment and escape the cycle of rebirth. But it's not as frequent as you might think because of this complacency that occurs in the mind.
2: Thank you, sir. You're welcome. I don't see any more questions on Zoom at this time, sir.
1: All right, so we'll go to chapter 98.
2: Okay, Jan, will you please read chapter 98 for us?
1: Yes, thank
4: you, Rick. Impermanent, short-term, non-eternal heavenly beings. Monks, in the evening the lion, the king of beasts, comes out of his lair, stretches his body, surveys the four quarters all around, and roars his lion's roar three times. Then he sets out in search of game. Whatever animals hear the lion roaring, for the most part are filled with fear, a sense of urgency and terror. Those who live in holes enter their holes. Those who live in the water enter the water. Those who live in the woods enter the woods and the birds resort to the sky. Even those royal bull elephants bound by strong thongs in the villages, towns, and capital cities burst and break their bonds apart. Frightened, they urinate and defecate and flee here and there. So powerful among animals is the lion, the king of beasts, so majestic and mighty. So too, monks, when the Tathagata arises in the world, an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortunate knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, Teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one, the perfectly enlightened one, he teaches the teachings thus. Such is personal existence, such the origin of personal existence, such the elimination of personal existence, such the way to the elimination of personal existence. When those heavenly beings who are long lived, beautiful, abounding in happiness, residing for a long time in magnificent palaces, hear the Tathagata's teaching of the teachings. For the most part, they are filled with fear, a sense of urgency and terror, thus. It seems that we are actually impermanent, though we thought ourselves permanent. Seems that we are actually short-term, though we thought ourselves everlasting. Seems that we are actually non-eternal, though we thought ourselves eternal. Seems that we are impermanent, short-term, non-eternal, included in personal existence. So powerful is the Tathagata, so majestic and mighty is he in this world together with its heavenly beings.
1: All right. Thank you, Jan. So here the Buddha is talking about once a Tathagata, a Buddha arises in the world, these heavenly beings are learning things that they hadn't learned before that they didn't necessarily understand because lifespan is so long in the heavenly realm for so many eons it's very easy for that ignorance or the unknowing of true reality to really set in in the mind of a heavenly being that they think that they're eternal that they think that their life is going to be eternal and once a tathagata arises in the world and they're teaching their teachings and these heavenly beings start to hear that they're not eternal, that they're impermanent, and they are going to come to an end in that heavenly realm, that their lifespan is going to eventually end. This is where the Buddha is saying, oh, there's this great you know, fear, I think he says, this sense of urgency, right? This kind of helps them to get out of their complacency. There's this terror that when they're hearing the Tadaga's teachings, they realize that their lifespan is not eternal, that it's not long-term, that they're, it's going to come to an end. So a Tathagata or a Buddha is sharing teachings that is helping human beings and heavenly beings, because these are the realms that beings can actually get to enlightenment. And it's not until they're learning and understanding the teachings of a Buddha that they're going to be able to actually escape this cycle of rebirth. But these heavenly beings that the Buddha is talking about are kind of Unknowing of true reality, not even realizing that they're necessarily stuck in the cycle of rebirth. So here he's saying that these teachings are to help all of these beings. And he's equating that to this lion of the jungle or the the king of the beast, who you know, is this majestic being that all other animals are essentially scared of or, or, or having terror or having fear of this lion. He's sharing that these heavenly beings, have the same thing when they start hearing the teachings of a Tathagata. But this can also be the motivating factor, which helps them to then get dedicated and diligent to learning and practicing the teachings. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: I am not seeing any questions on Zoom at this time, sir.
1: All right, so we go to Chapter
2: 99. Miranda, would you please read this chapter for us?
3: Yes, sir. A harmful view of Baka the Brahma. Monks, on one occasion, I was living at Ukata in the Sukhaga Grove at the root of a royal solitary. Now on that occasion, a harmful view had arisen in Baka the Brahma thus. Mm-hmm. This is permanent. This is everlasting. This is eternal. This is total. This is not subject to pass away. For this is where one is neither born, nor ages, nor dies, nor passes away, nor reappears, and beyond this, there is no other escape. I knew with my mind the thought in the mind of Baka the Brahma. So just as quickly as a strong man might extend his flexed arm, or flex his extended arm, I vanished from the root of the royal sal tree in the Supaga Grove at Ukkata, and appeared in that Brahma world. Akada the Brahma saw me coming in the distance and said, Come, good sir. Welcome, good sir. It is good. It is long, good sir, since you found an opportunity to come here. Now, good sir, this is permanent. This is everlasting. This is eternal. This is total. This is not subject to pass away. For this is where one is neither born, nor ages, nor dies, nor passes away, nor reappears. And beyond this, there is no other escape. When this was said, I told Bhaka the Brahma, the worthy Bhaka the Brahma has lapsed into ignorance or unknowing of true reality. He has lapsed into ignorance in that he says of the impermanent that it is permanent, of the short term that it is everlasting, of the non-eternal that it is eternal, of the incomplete that it is total, of what is subject to pass away that it is not subject to pass away, of where one is born, ages, dies, passes away and reappears, that here one is neither born, nor ages, nor dies, nor passes away, nor reappears. And when there is another escape beyond this, he says there is no further escape beyond this. Further details can be found by reading Rahmani tanika Discourse, The invitation of a Brahma, Pali version in the Majjhima Nikaya section of Tripitaka. Having seen fear in being, And having seen that being will cease to be i did not welcome any kind of being nor did i cling to excitement and that at that the brahma and the brahma's assembly and the members of the brahma's assembly were struck with wonder and amazement saying it is wonderful sirs it is marvelous the great power and great might of the ascetic gotama we have never before seen or heard of any other ascetic or Brahmin who had such great power and such great might as this ascetic Gotama, who went forth from a Sakyan plan, serves through living in a generation that excites an existence, that takes excitement in existence, that rejoices in existence. He has eliminated existence at its root.
1: All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is essentially talking to this being who has wrong view or a harmful view thinking that things are permanent. And as we know, and as we look around and investigate for ourselves, we can see the universal truth of impermanence and understand that. But here's a being who doesn't understand that, and that's harmful for them by not understanding that. And the Buddha is explaining that there's this unknowing of true reality as a result of not understanding this universal truth of impermanence. And then ultimately, what we get to in this last paragraph is they're talking about a generation that excites in existence, takes excitement in existence, that rejoices in existence. This is sometimes what we experience today, that we have beings who really want to exist for longer and longer and longer periods of time. People are searching for the fountain of youth or you know eternal life or things like this, not understanding that that's not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. But here, these particular beings are kind of admiring the Buddha, or what they mostly referred to him as during his lifetime, which was Aesthetic Gautama. They referred to him as Aesthetic Gautama, or Master Teacher Gautama. It wasn't until after his death that people really understood that he was a Buddha, because at that point, all three criteria had actually uh, been identified, is that he attained enlightenment by himself. He dedicated the rest of his life to a helping others to attain enlightenment and countless beings attained enlightenment during his lifetime. And then the third criteria is that after his death, he left the teachings in such a condition that countless more people can get to enlightenment. And they're acknowledging even during his life, how his teachings have this great power and that he has eliminated existence at its root. Now, eliminating existence in the cycle of rebirth is very different than saying after somebody attains enlightenment and dies, there's no existence at all. So the Buddha didn't declare, as I mentioned previously, that once you attain enlightenment and die, he didn't declare what's next. But we do know that there's no existence in the cycle of rebirth for a being who gets to enlightenment. You need to be able to see these two things as two separate things. That existence in the cycle of rebirth is one thing, but existence after enlightenment, he didn't declare whether that occurs or doesn't occur. But surely an enlightened being is no longer going to be reborn in the cycle of rebirth. They've been liberated from that. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: It looks like there are no questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. So we'll go to our last chapter for today, which is chapter 100.
2: Hey, and will you please read the next chapter for us?
4: Yes, thank you, Rick. The partly eternalists and the partly non-eternalists. There are, monks, some ascetics and Brahmins who are partly eternalists and partly non-eternalists, who proclaim the partial eternity and the partial non-eternity of the self and the world in four ways. On what grounds? There comes a time, monks, sooner or later, after a long period, When this world contracts. At a time of contraction, beings are mostly reborn in the Ahasara Brahma world. And there they dwell, mind made, feeding on excitement, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. And they stay like that for a very long time. But the time comes, sooner or later, after a long period, when this world begins to expand this expanding world an empty palace of brahma appears and then one being from exhaustion of his lifespan or of his merits falls from the asara world and arises in the empty brahma palace and there he dwells mind made feeding on excitement self-luminous moving through the air glorious and he stays like that for a very long time Then in this being who has been alone for so long, there arises unrest, discontent, and worry. And he thinks, oh, if only some other beings would come here. And other beings, from exhaustion of their lifespan or of their merits, fall from the Ahasara world and arise in the Brahma palace as companions for this being. And then monks, that being who first arose there thinks, I am Brahma the great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the Lord, the maker and creator, ruler, Appointer and orderer, father of all that have been and shall be. These beings were created by me. How so? Because I first had this thought. Oh, if only some other beings would come here. That was my wish. And then these other beings came into this existence. But these beings who arose subsequently think, This friend is Brahma, great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, the Lord, the maker and creator, ruler, appointer and orderer, father of all that have been and shall be. How so? We have seen that he was here first and that we arose after him. And this being that arose first is longer lived, more beautiful and more powerful than they are. And it may happen, that some being falls from that realm and arises in this world. Having arisen in this world, he goes forth from the household life into homelessness. Having gone forth, he by means of effort, exertion, application, earnestness, and right attention, attains to such degree a mental concentration that he thereby recalls his last existence, but recalls none before that. And he thinks that Brahma, he made us, And he is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, the same forever and ever. But we who were created by that Brahma, we are impermanent, unstable, short-lived, fated to fall away, and we have come to this world. This is the first case whereby some ascetics and Brahmins are partly eternalists and partly non-eternalists. And what is the second way? There are monks, certainly heavenly beings, certainly, I'm sorry. There are monks, certain heavenly beings called corrupted by pleasure. They spend an excessive amount of time addicted to happiness, play and enjoyment so that their mindfulness disappears. And by the disappearance of mindfulness, those beings fall from that state. And it can happen that a being having fallen from that state arises in this world having arisen in this world he goes forth from the household life into homelessness having gone forth he by means of effort exertion application earnestness and right attention attains to such a degree of mental concentration that he hereby recalls his last existence but recalls none before that he thinks those divine heavenly beings who are not corrupted by pleasure do not spend an excessive amount of time addicted to happiness play and enjoyment thus their mindfulness does not disappear and so they do not fall from that state they are permanent stable eternal not subject to change the same forever and ever but we who are corrupted by pleasure spend an excessive amount of time addicted to happiness play and enjoyment Thus, we, by the disappearance of mindfulness, have fallen from that state. We are impermanent, unstable, short-lived, fated to fall away, and we have come to this world. This is the second case. And what is the third way? There are monks, certainly having certain heavenly beings, called corrupted in mind. They spend an excessive amount of time regarding each other with jealousy. By this means, their minds are corrupted. On account of of their corrupted minds, they become weary in body and mind, and they fall from that place. And it can happen that a being, having fallen from that state, arises in this world. Having arisen in this world, he goes forth from the household life into homelessness. Having gone forth, he by means of effort, exertion, application, earnestness, and right attention, attains to such a degree of mental concentration that he thereby recalls his last existence, but recalls none before that. He thinks those divine heavenly beings who are not corrupted in mind do not spend an excessive amount of time regarding each other with jealousy. They do not become corrupted in mind or weary in mind and body, and so they do not fall from that state. They are permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change, the same forever and ever, But we, who are corrupted by mind, spend an excessive amount of time regarding each other with jealousy. Thus we, by the disappearance of mindfulness, have fallen from that state, are permanent, unstable, short-lived, fated to fall away, and we've come to this world. This is the third case. And what is the fourth way? Here, a certain ascetic or Brahmin is an expert in logic, a reasoner, hammering it out by reason, following his own line of thought he argues whatever is called eye or ear or nose or tongue or body that is impermanent unstable non-eternal liable to change but what is called thought or mind or consciousness that is a self that is permanent stable eternal not subject to change the same forever and ever this is the fourth case
1: all right thank you jan So here he's describing people who are essentially thinking that some things are permanent and some things are impermanent. And of course, we know that that's not necessarily true in the way that they're describing certain aspects of life. There are certain things that are conditioned and that are impermanent, and then there's things that are unconditioned. Essentially, these are mental states. But in terms of material objects and things like this, this term in terms of our existence in the cycle of rebirth, all these things are impermanent. So that's what he's describing here, is that people feel that some things are permanent and some things are impermanent, and that's not correct view or right view. One of the things that I would like to point out here is where he's talking about God, where he's using the word Brahma, that's in our language we refer to this being as God. Oftentimes people say that the Buddha denied the existence of God, which isn't true. He just didn't make God the central focus of his teachings. And here this is one of the places of many that you can see in his teachings where he's actually talking about God. And he describes God in a way that we oftentimes think about God today depending on you know what your thoughts are about God we oftentimes think of him in this way as being you know this all knowing all powerful this maker creator in these other ways that the buddha is describing him here so you see the words of the buddha that he absolutely did teach about God but he understood that worshipping God isn't going to necessarily bring you anything beneficial in terms of the decisions that you're making. It doesn't mean you can't worship God. It just means that if you only worshiped God and you went out on the parking lot and you used wrong speech and you were aggressive with people, yeah, your life's going to be quite challenging and quite a struggle. But it's the results of our decisions, not because of what God did. So he encouraged people to take responsibility for their own decisions, which includes their intentions, their speech, and their actions. And by doing that, that's where we see improvement in the condition of our mind and the condition of our life, along with practicing all those other steps of the Eightfold Path. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
2: It appears we have no questions at this time, sir.
1: All right. Well, thank you all once again for joining for today's class, and it's interesting that we ended on this particular chapter because in tomorrow's class in the group learning program, in Volume 1 of this book series, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, Chapter 18 is titled God's Creative Action you have free will. This is where I'm going to help students to understand if they would like to have a relationship with God, how to do that and still get to enlightenment. And if you're not interested in having a relationship with God, I'm going to explain to you how to do that and still get to enlightenment as well. Because depending on what you've been taught in various communities or various places that you might have learned teachings about God, if you have certain conditioning of the mind where you're taught to fear God, then you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment as long as you have fear. Or if you're thinking that God is punishing you or rewarding you, these kind of things, I'm going to be helping you to see the truth, not through believing me and what I teach, but through learning what I share with you. Then you can reflect on it and independently start verifying the truth. And then you can practice and see the truth for yourself about this being of God. Because, if someone's going to have a relationship with God, but we walked around fearing and, you know treating God like a genie in a bottle, wanting him to change things in our life and all these other things, then our mind is still having ignorance or unknowing of true reality. So Gautama Buddha taught about God and helped people to understand God so that they could still get to liberation or enlightenment or freedom from strong feelings. So that's what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. And you're welcome to read that chapter prior to class if you'd like to. And then this wednesday in our group learning program i'm going to be sharing loving kindness meditation and guiding you guys in a loving kindness meditation and then next saturday in this class we're going to be moving on to the next 10 chapters which is chapters 101 to 110 so you're welcome to read those ahead of time if you'd like to read ahead of time and then you can see not only the words of the buddha but you can see what i wrote about these chapters as well because In this class, I only teach to a certain level of detail. In the book, I was able to write out all the various aspects of each individual part of these various chapters, but in the class, I don't have time to go through all of that. I just kind of highlight a certain few things. So if you read the book and come to class, you're gonna glean the most benefit of being able to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha. So thank you all for participating. Thank you for reading. Thank you for all your questions. And thank you for your dedication and diligence to learning and practicing these teachings, because as you do, your life's going to improve the life of the people around you and all of humanity, because by you causing less harm in the world, then you're going to experience less impact because you're not causing harm. The people around you are going to have an improved life, and then it's helping to gradually and slowly improve all of humanity. So thank you for your dedication and your diligence. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadiha.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com.